0: Good afternoon, everybody. Um, Thank you for joining me again. Um, I'll begin as I have been. I hope this finds all of you and your loved ones um, safe and well. Um, I also want to invite you to, um, in the chat area, if you would be willing to just identify yourself and where you are. Um, It's nice to sort of have a sense of who we're learning with. Our topic today is Psalm 39, which I think is um, fair to say significantly less well-known than any of the three Psalms we've done until now. Psalm 39, before we read it, I just want to say is um, one of the things that is wonderful about it is how ambiguous it is, or at least how differently people have heard it. And just to give you an example of this, just a taste before we go in, I wanted to read to you one sentence each from two extremely prominent academic scholars of Psalms. This this is how they each describe how the Psalm ends. So first of all, H.J. Krauss, a great German Bible scholar, comments, the Psalm breaks off in despair. It is plunged into darkness without parallel. In contrast, Peter Craigie quote the psalmist has regained his perspective on the transitory nature of human life and can face death with calmness. Amazingly different way of hearing what's actually happening here and I I present that to you, you may decide that, in contrast to some of the ways i've presented some of these psalms. It's not deliberately ambiguous. There's a correct reading and an incorrect reading, or you may not, I'm I'm open, but I just wanted to share with you. I think one of the things that's really interesting about this text is the different ways that it's been heard. Um, Excuse me, the second thing I wanted to say by way of introduction before we read it is that I think this Psalm in a very direct way brings us up against the question of why lament is so important in biblical spirituality Um, and as part of that i also want to consider what is gained and what is lost in a religious culture that forbids lament and as i think i mentioned in one of the earlier sessions when we studied psalm 22 you know i grew up in a religious culture in which the only acceptable answer or response i should say to suffering was essentially to say Gamzula tovah. You know, this is also for the best. And as I mentioned, as I got older and I started to study Tehillim in a serious way, I realized how bewildered the Book of Tehillim would be by a religious worldview that limited a response to suffering to Gamzula Tova. And, you know, what it means to be willing to say, God, this is unfair, this is horrible. And then even one step further, this is unfair, this is horrible. And this is your fault, um, as as we will see. Okay. So with that, I'd like to, as we have been doing, um, ask for a volunteer to read in the Hebrew and then I'll read the JPS translation. And then when we go through the verses one by one, I'll also kind of point out some of the areas where, um, we might have some other possibilities of, of how to translate. So is there anyone here? Um, Lou Levine, can I, would it be okay if I called on you to, to, Read the Hebrew. If not, that's
1: fine too. Okay,
0: for the leader or conductor, for you do tune a Psalm of David.
1: I need
0: to take my
1: glasses off. I'm sorry. Oh, I see. I, I was reading. Uh, I was reading a. Something is a, a single.
0: I resolved I would watch my step lest I offend by my speech. I would keep my mouth muzzled while the wicked man was in my presence.
1: Neelanti dumia mitov nechar.
0: The car. Yeah, car. Yeah, I was dumb, silent. I was very still while my pain was intense.
1: Cham libi bekirbi, b'ha gigi tiv dibarti bilshonai bilshoni.
0: My mind was in a rage. My thoughts were all aflame. I spoke out.
1: Hodi'eni adunai kitzi. Midat Yamai Mahi, Ed Ah
0: Mechadalani. right. Tell me, O oh Lord, what my term is. What is the measure of my days? I would know how fleeting my life is.
1: Hine, Hine, Fachot Natata Yamai, the Helde, Negdecha. Ach kol hevel kol adam Nitsav sema
0: you have made my life just handbreadths long its span is as nothing in your sight no man endures longer than a breath sela
1: ach betzem yithalech ish ach hevel yehamayon
0: its bore veloyeda mi ofam osfam man walks about as a mere shadow Mere futility is his hustle and bustle, amassing and not knowing who will gather in.
1: Kiviti, Adonai, tochalti
0: l'chahi. Tochalti, right, l'chahi. What, l'cha. what then can I count on, O Lord? In you my hope lies.
1: Mikol pesha'ai ha-tsileni, cher, cherpat naval Alti simeni,
0: deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the butt of the benighted.
1: Neelamti loeftachpi ki ata asita.
0: I am dumb. I do not speak up, for it is your doing.
1: Aser may me- alay nigecha mi tinerat yadcha yadcha ani
0: kaliti. Take away, take away your plague from me. I perish from your blows.
1: al avon yisarta ish, ka'ash chamudo
0: kol You chastise a man in punishment for his sin, consuming like a moth what he treasures. No man is more than a breath. Sela.
1: Shmat filati adonai, the shavati hazina. El dimati al teherash. ki kidere nohimah. To shav kehol avotai.
0: Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not disregard my tears for all for like all my forebears i am an alien resident with you
1: hasha <laughs> Vavliga. Vavliga, i'm sorry uh,
0: look away from me that i may recover before i pass away and am gone um thank you lou um, wow. <laughs> this this is a text first of all um where there's a lot of polarities, speech and silence, um, life and death. Um, all of it is kind of a soup, which is one of the reasons one of the reasons why I'm suggesting that we might want to read this text as kind of interested in its own ambiguity, but I'm not sure about that. Um, one of the things that Robert alter points out in the art of biblical poetry as opposed to his Psalms commentary about this poem is that it's not just that you have poles, but that you have rapid swings between the poles, which he thinks is the texts way of trying to point to a kind of psychological dialectic, not just a philosophical dialectic. If that sounds very abstract. In other words, he's saying it's not just about ideas, it's about moods and experiences um that the the kind of swing in the psalmist um is 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 an emotional one as well um I, I think another way of saying this or if, maybe it's not another way of saying it maybe it's a, it's a separate point that builds on it is that if I said to you is this a text about hope or is this a text about despair I suspect that the best answer to that would have to be well yes it's about the strange coexistence the difficult kind of jockeying between hope and despair and for that matter even the simultaneous presence in one conflicted spirit um, between hope uh and despair um now just to share a couple of things more before we kind of move into a closer reading one is that i want to just note what some of you may have noticed already is that in a variety of places here There are interesting connections to the book of Kohelet and I'm not really sure that I want to say anything about, you know, where the influence lies, but you have here, first of all, a preoccupation with the brevity of life expressed by the word Hevel in verses six and 12, which is an obvious, you know, for everyone, I think, who's kind of inside the world of Tanakh, if I say the word Hevel, they either think about Brashit chapter four, or they think about the book of Kohelet. And if they have a particularly interpretive imagination, they think about both of those together. Um, so that's one thing. It's also questioning the purpose of life, and especially, as we'll see later, the idea that what's the point of getting wealthy? Who's going to inherit me anyway? Uh, uh, a thought that Kohelet also expresses with great despair. Um, and then interestingly, the conclusion that people should end up, um, a, conclusion, a, a conclusion that ends with the idea that people should serve should serve God. We'll get to that as well. As I've talked about with previous Psalms, so in this one, the nature of his suffering is not specified and that enables people in various circumstances to feel perhaps that they can inhabit the eye. Could this be about illness? Could this be about abandonment by friends? Could this be about the death of a loved one? Yes, it could be about all of those things. And as we've talked about, um, recent scholarship on psalms sort of suggests that that's a deliberate literary device that the psalms use to make themselves accessible to people in varying circumstances now i want to mention something that that alter points out also in the art of biblical poetry that i think is a very helpful literary lens here um what alter are, points out is that biblical poetry is usually dyadic that is it exists in in poetic lines which have two parallel members and this poem um, is often triadic there are you'll see three tslaim. i don't know how how do you say that in english three um um uh colons i guess you might say right um in, in 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 literary speak judith you'll tell me if i'm right about that i'm not sure um and what he wants to what Alter wanted to suggest is that when you have a third piece that is unexpected that is used as a literary way of alerting you to be surprised um that what's coming is unexpected that that's the literary way of saying oh wait i'm breaking the structure in other words to put that a little differently form imitates content here right that is to say that the third unexpected line of poetry um suggests a third perhaps unexpected thought or feeling um Okay, and I guess the one one last thing I wanna ask you to keep in mind, and then maybe depending on how much time there is, we can come back to this, is what you think the relationship is between speech on the one hand and the rediscovery of hope on the other, right? In what way does giving voice to suffering or despair perhaps paradoxic, paradoxically give rise to hope? And here I would remind people or point people in a very different register to a classic essay by Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik called I can never remember how these three terms go in what order, I think it's called Prayer Talmud Torah, Redemption an essay in which he argues totally beautifully if also totally homiletically that the reason why we attach in tefillah to tfilah, the reason why we say Ga'al Yisrael, the God who redeems Israel right before we articulate our requests is because that is an existentialist way of acknowledging that just being able to find words for what we need is itself redemptive that there is a redemption that comes through speech um again i doubt very much that that is like a <laughs> that that's what chazal the sages of the talmud are thinking but it's one of Soloveitchik's most beautiful essays <clears throat> excuse me um I have never quite done this, but I have always wanted to assign that essay together with um, one of Frederick Douglass's autobiographies. Because in Frederick Douglass's autobiographies, too, the discovery of speech is an act of liberation. Once Douglass can read, it's all over. On some level, he's already been freed. Um, okay. And with that, Pasuk <laughs> Aleph. Okay. So, Lamnatseah li dutun um right for the conductor um for Yidutun Yidutun was a famous temple musician one of the three music leaders in the um in David and Shlomo's time um you can look at psalm 62 and 77 you can look at um divrei Yamim aleph and bet i can happy to send you references um and then we begin. And, and and as I've talked about in every session, I don't know and I'm not convinced anybody knows what leDavid David actually means in Tehillim. Um, when I say that to people who grew up um, in Orthodox settings, they often look at me like I'm insane, meaning that's the only word I understand. But again, Le David, for David, by David, in the Davidic tradition, for the Davidic king, in the musical tradition of David, all of that is possible. And as we saw in Psalm 30, he's more sure with david sure does seem to argue that david does not mean by david given that he never saw hanukkatabite right given that he was never alive for um the the dedication of a temple okay um so l- now verses 2 through 5 are going to express the psalmist's concern excuse me i'm fighting off my ninth round of laryngitis um in the last couple of months um that um lest he commit a sin by speaking brazenly or by speaking inappropriately and the sin and this is actually just to remind you when i said that this psalm i think is really interested in the question of what is gained and what is lost in a culture in which lament is permitted or or forbidden what you see here i think is he's very nervous presumably his sin would be challenging god and expressing anger at god and yet part of the power of this Psalm is the moment when he basically says, I can't help it. I have to speak. Um, and so, and so there in these verses, you have this kind of fascinating, larger spiritual and theological question raised. Um, I guess I should add that it also seems like he's concerned. This may be the same concern or another concern. He doesn't want to give added ammunition to the wicked, to attack him or maybe even to attack God, okay? So in 39.2, I resolved, I decided, by the way, the word Amar, which in modern Hebrew you tend to think of as say, but Amar in biblical and also in rabbinic Hebrew can mean to say or think. adam is not just let us the person say, it might be let us the person think. So Amarti, so I resolved, I think is actually a pretty good translation here. I I, I should watch my ways lest I sin with my tongue in the way that I speak. I should put a muzzle on my mouth. Now sit with that image for a minute. What you realize is from the very beginning, he is desperate to express himself, right? You don't talk about putting a muzzle on unless you're working incredibly hard not to say what you want to. It's not some quiet pious, oh, I would never say a bad word about God. It's, I'm dying to, but I know I shouldn't. I think that's the valence of a muzzle here. be'od rasha While the rasha, the wicked person, is um, still in, in, in my presence. Um, the interesting question that that raises for me, that I, I, I won't talk about now, mainly because I don't have a whole lot of insight into it, is whether he's implying that were he totally alone with God, he would off the off the bat be comfortable saying it. In other words, is the fear of lament other people's mockery, disbelief, bad intentions, etc. Or is there something inherently problematic and overly brazen, you know, in what Chazal will later call lehatiyach darim klep heimala, to hurl words um, at heaven. I'm sorry, this is a total digression that may irritate some people, but I will tell you my favorite line in all of modern Hebrew literature is the opening of Agnon's Wait, is it um, T'mol Shil Now I'm forgetting which novel it is, where he's describing a woman who is yelling at her husband and he says, Vehetichad varim klape ba'ala. And she hurled words at her husband instead of mala bala. That, by the way, if you've ever read Agno, that's Agnon in the genius that will never come again. Um, okay, forgive me for that digression. I couldn't help myself. Now, pasuk gimel, neelamti dumia. GPS here, I think, uses the translations that we would not want to use. I was dumb. We would say I was mute, right? Neelamti dumia. I was utterly, utterly mute. I could barely speak. And one of the questions I think is interesting to ask about this is, does he mean because I had forbidden myself to speak or because my suffering was so great that I could not speak? In other words, is Pasuk Gimel explaining and furthering what he said in Pasuk Bet? Or is he offering another reason why he's been silent? First of all, I did in Pasuk Bet, I didn't speak because I was afraid of effrontery. And Pasuk Gimel, I didn't speak because sometimes the pain is so vast, there's nothing to say i i i can't I, I I what what could i possibly say and then comes a phrase that is wildly um elusive <laughs> just to drive you crazy, I will give you five possibilities of what this might mean g p s says i was very still um, and I gave you in the in the supplemental sources a pasuk from yona that validates that possibility of being very still tev the notion of tov as an adjective that that implies kind of veriness or extremeness um robert alter which i'm skeptical about i kept still deprived of good problem with that is it's missing a hebrew word for deprived of good I think that that's a little bit of a stretch. The NIV translation I was silent, not even saying anything good. Chesheti, in other words, afilu mi tov or af mi tov. Um, The NRSV I held my peace to no avail. Chesheti, but it did me no tov. John Golden Gay, contemporary evangelical Bible scholar and translator. I love this translation. I really don't know whether a grammarian would be willing to defend it. I kept quiet more than it was good. <laughs> right, I, I was I was too silent. It was actually a mistake not to give voice to my suffering. I love that sort of spiritually and homiletically. I'm not quite sure it's pshat, but on the other hand, I don't. I'm not particularly confident about um, what pshat is um okay and then the end of that verse my pain was just overpowering me was extreme okay and now he's going to go on to this amazing turn he says my mind i i I do not like i have to say the translation of lave as mind that some bible scholars are committed to it seems to me and i am i am kind of Stepping into a debate here, that there are people far, far, far more qualified than me to have. But my sense of what lave means in the Hebrew Bible most often is the seat of thought, emotion, and will all together. I'm not sure that biblically speaking, the way we divide emotion, thought, and will is all that recognizable um and one of the things that i'm writing about in my current book project about love is actually the ways in which we rarely stop to think about the way we divide internal experiences is historic very much historically located i'm just not sure that the bible would understand if you said is that a thought or is that a feeling i think the bible would say what what is that dichotomy that you're making and fascinatingly by the way philosophy of the emotions has come right around to that view now where people talk about Martha Nussbaum, for example, writes at great length about the cognitive dimension of emotion. All emotions contain thoughts within them. I mean, there's a lot we could talk about there, but this is a Tanakh class, not a philosophy class, so I'll rein myself in. Um, so, so, I would say, you know, my heart was, was hot within me, and then this beautiful image, my thoughts were on fire. I, I was suffering terribly and I, I I would actually ask people to think about and maybe if there's time at the end or you could type in now and I'll look at the comments again at the end. Um, what the image of thoughts being a flame suggests to you is that confusion? Is it rage? Is it ambivalence? Is it just pain? A lot of ways we might hear that um, and then comes. What Alter, I think, is really has in mind when he talks about how when the third piece is unexpected and surprising, you expect you have here in the first two colons here traditional parallels parallelism. In my thoughts, there was fire. And then you, if there's gonna be another one, you might expect some other way of saying. You know, my my, my thoughts were, you know, discombobulated. I was confused. I was raging. But instead, you have almost this outburst, I started talking. I couldn't hold it in anymore. So in other words, 4C, that is the end of Pasuk dalid kind of undoes everything we've heard from Pasuk Bet until now. I couldn't talk. I won't talk. I can barely speak. I spoke. And what I think is interesting, and this is one of the reasons I was drawn to that golden gate translation of Hechesheti Mitov, meaning I was silent more than it was good, even though again I'm not sure I can defend it, is that I wonder whether one of the things that the psalmist is interested in here is, you know, keeping silent. I understand the piety of that, but it's also incredibly destructive. First of all, it's destructive to me, the person who's suffering, but also it's destructive to the possibility that God and I have an authentic relationship. Right. The problem of always saying, oh yeah, what you did to me is fine. Or what you didn't do for me is fine. Is that you end up having a relationship that is fundamentally dishonest. Um, or to take it one step further, psychologically. If I'm told over and over again that the only response is unrestrained piety, then actually I really run the risk of essentially creating a shadow self, right? Rather than not feeling anger, I tell myself that I don't feel anger and therefore my anger actually becomes more powerful. This is stuff that I mean many psychologists have talked about probably most famously Carl Jung right the notion that like you know. You know what it's like i'm I'm sorry Some of you've heard me say this before and it's kind of offensive but. um, I always like to joke that in every carl Bach minion i've ever been to there's one person at least who's actually a simmering pot of rage but whose exterior is oh hey brother how you doing i'm just full of love and meanwhile you can tangibly feel that there's this whole world of emotion underneath that they have decided to repress right and this psalm is an incredibly interesting example i think of refusing repression and actually assuming that it is not good for me and it is not good for authentic relationship if i just you know thwart any kind of self-expression um i I don't want to go into this any length here but i do want to mention at least that the bible scholar walter brueggemann has argued i mean it's a really interesting argument whether you buy it or not i will leave it to you to decide that there is also a political cost to a religion that forbids lament which is that if you are trained never to be able to protest at the seat of power, you will never protest at the seat of earthly power either. Or I think he says somewhere, you know, if I can't lobby a complaint at the heavenly throne, then the earthly throne becomes impregnable also. I, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's a very political reading, but it's not a crazy idea. Um, because one could argue, I suppose, by a kind of Calva that if you're allowed to cry out against God's injustice, then by a certain logic, at least, even though I could imagine someone making the exact opposite case, um, by a certain logic at least, well, then obviously an earthly king is also subject to my expression of complaint or frustration. Um, for another example of this, you can look at your Miyahu um, and maybe even the words of Elihu in in eO of chapter thirty two, which I think I have also, if I recall, included in your packet. I'm trying not to look at comments till the end and also not to scroll on this source sheet so I don't lose focus. Um, so and we could say maybe one more thing about this, which is that it seems like the suffering that this psalmist is enduring is twofold. A, whatever suffering he's enduring, and B, the inability to speak it freely, right? And I'm sure many of us could identify many moments in our life where we were enduring some kind of double suffering for that reason um, I think a lot about conversations I've had with certain people in the months after divorces where people have said yeah well first of all I was miserable and second of all I could never say anything um and that's sort of how much more intense the pain becomes and that appears to be um what's happening or what has happened here until he decided to break through in that third you know, colon of of Pasuk Dalit and express his, his um, suffering. I see just from the number in the chat box that there are probably a lot of questions or comments. I will do my best to get to them later on. Okay. Um, Excuse me, Pasuk Hay, trying to keep my voice going here. Hodi Aini. Now, what's gonna be interesting here is, um, I think that what we would expect in a Psalm of Lament here is that the next pasuk would be something like lama the classic word of lament why god and as we've talked about lama in psalms of lament is usually not a request for an explanation but a request for action but here instead what we get is this kind of extended meditation on the transience of human life um and he says here right hodi adonai kitzi tell me oh lord J.P.S. says, what my term is, umidat yamai mahi, what is the measure of my days? Now, most translators and commentators, certainly in the modern period, understand what he's saying is is essentially about yearning for death. Tell me, God, when this will finally be over, how long will I have to endure this? Um, Richard Clifford, who I've quoted before, who's a you know a Semiticist whose work I really admire although I have to say here I'm not persuaded by this but I want to mention it he thinks that as a rule people people misread what pasouke is about and what he's really asking is let me know the term of my affliction what the measure of the days that I will have to go on suffering is in other words may I know how long it'll be before this stops as opposed to may I long may I know how long it'll be before I die, which is the only confidence I have that it will stop. That's how Clifford wants to read these words. Um, I guess my own kind of intuitive response to what he's saying here is that it's a more simple expression of despair, I can't wait to die. So this will finally stop, but perhaps not and people feel should feel free in the in the in, in the chat to add your own reading you know how you hear that if you'd like. Um okay. Um I, sorry, you know what? Let me add one thing. There's another way of reading let me know how long it'll be. Um which is not just let me know when I'll die so this will finally stop, but perhaps you could say let me know when this will be over because somehow that will teach me or enable me to bear this with greater equanimity. Maybe knowing how long it'll be is somehow soothing in and of itself. I'm not, I'm not totally sure about that, but I think it's another possibility. Forgive me. I'm really losing my voice. So, um, um, and then, Ani," so I may know how fleeting my life is. And then he says, he makes fuck Tata Yama. You've made my life the smallest possible measure, like in the rabbinic measurement of Tefach, right? And my, my lifespan is as nothing in your sight. Notice, by the way, the beautiful word play between mechadel ani vecheldik ke'ayin, two word reversals that go together. This is biblical poetry at its finest and good luck to a translator, right? Where you're just kind of reversing in two straight words, the root. Um, 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 and then the last phrase, which nobody knows how to translate. ach kol hevel kol adam um, mitsav." J. P. S. No man endures longer than a breath, but then you get my favorite, you know, J. P. S. Comment, meaning of heb uncertain. Um, Robert alter tries mere breath is each man standing. Okay. I'm not sure I can make an argument for either of those in the Hebrew. Um, and that, so it's a hard one. I, I think the point, the larger thrust of what he's saying is clear, but how to render those words exactly is not totally clear to me, at least. Uh, I, th- I think it's not totally clear to anybody and then cella. and the word "sella, um, I would just say, according to academics, at least is most likely a musicological term, um, and suggests the end of one unit, at which point the instruments are cued and then the next unit will begin. The Septuagint I think renders, I forget now that Sela uh, as an interlude, um, In a more traditional vein radak tries to derive the word selah from the hebrew root salal meaning to say loudly meaning it's a kind of raise your voices now i don't know that that's accepted by any modern scholars um so now that appears to be a a a shift in mood except what's weird is that the mood doesn't shift at all so that's a bit of a challenge um it says a person walks about as a mere shadow, right? Ah hevel yamayun, mere futility is his hustle and bustle. I love that rendering in JPS. I think that's pretty good. Yitzbor viloye dam mi osfam. There, I think I gave you in in the packet. See Kohelet Perik Bet, Sukim 18 and 19, where Kohelet is in despair among other things. What is the point of getting rich? Then I die, and someone else who hasn't earned it will get it. Well, like, what is the point of that? And here you see this, as I said at the outset, this kind of echoing of Kohelet's frustration um, and and despair. And then Pasuk 8, which I think is really interesting from, we'll just kind of notice this. Um, Actually, let me say about the unit that's coming from 8 on, we have a kind of transition that essentially says, since my affliction comes only from you my redemption can also only come from you right and it's also worth noticing that this is a psalm in which if there's a complaint here it's that the suffering is too intense there's no proclamation of innocence here as you have for example we'll do in in a in a while we'll do um psalm 44 which is dramatic in its, in its declaration, hey, you wanna search me? Search me. I did nothing wrong. I think in most Psalms of lament, what you have at least implicitly is, I'm not denying that, I'm, that I sinned and perhaps deserve punishment. What I am denying is that I deserve the kind and the extent and the intensity of the punishment you've meted out to me. And with that, I will just mention again what I've said on previous occasions, what does it take? Is it possible and how is it possible for someone who doesn't share some of the Psalms' core theological assumptions to find themselves in the I, in the first person of the text at prayer. If you don't think that your suffering is a punishment, how is a Psalm like this helpful? Um, okay, or how is a Psalm like this connectable to? How can a Psalm like this be prayed with authenticity? Whatever formulation of that question feels compelling to you. Now, the word ve'ata often signals in other Psalms the shift from complaint to petition. Uh, for example you can see um um Tehill and Perikbet. i forget at least did i put that in the packet i may not have um, um psalms chapter two did i put it in there i think i left it out i'm sorry you can see other examples of that and then notice the shift what he said is the human being is nothing absolutely nothing transient alive for a mere hand breath, and yet i have hope in god right it's almost like you anticipate the the piece of the morning davening, ma'anu mechayenu mechastenu etc. What are we? What are we? But we are yours. Um, there's a way in which you look. A person is nothing. But I knew I have hope. Um, the ata viti Adonai. Given that life is short and unpredictable, the only thing I can really have faith in in an ongoing way is you. I will give you a quote from 20th century jewish thought that some of you will think sounds like it came from mars but i think it's the same sentiment at one point at one point at, at one point rabbi solidechik talks about how it is only praying to god that is healing because to ask anyone else for help is to ask someone else who is also quote bereft of an antic fulcrum which is absurd germanic speak for some kind of groundedness in their own being god alone is that who is the one who is worth reaching out to because god is the one thing that is truly not transient um, you might even say that that's the difference between religious existentialism and existentialism is like is does there end up being something permanent to grab onto or not which is why most non-religious existentialists think that religious existentialists are not really existentialists at all because they solve the problem on some level, as opposed to dwelling in it. Happy to talk about that at another point. Um, Now, I also want you to see something I think is beautiful, which is, he says, Ma kiviti Adonai, in what can I hope? And the answer is not in a what, but only in a who. There is no what. There is no ma. There is only a me, right? Tochalti lechahi you are my only hope the what is answered by a who um and then 39.9 nine nine. call pshai Um, deliver me from all my transgressions there i would say again is the admission that i'm not innocent i'm just suffering too much um naval don't make me the object of the scorn of the of the wicked people don't 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 let them wag their head at me to use a biblical image um this i think should probably be read in the past tense um jps here translates in the present i am dumb or again as i prefer i am mute i do not speak up but i wonder whether he's actually referring to what it was before he started speaking. If he's speaking in the present, then there's this amazing back and forth between I'm gonna speak, I'm gonna hold it in. I'm gonna speak, I'm gonna hold it in, depending on if you hear it as past or present. Um, and there are translations, JPS, N R S V hear it as the present, NIV, Robert Alter, hear it as the past, a kind of recollection. And then I just want you to see also, lo'ef tachpi, I am mute, I will not open my mouth. Ki ata asita, the ata there is emphatic. Right? It is, if it was because you did it, it would be kiasita. Kiatasita is because you did it. That is always important to note in, in, I think, in biblical Hebrew. Probably the most dramatic example of that is Yaakov's confession, achen yesh, right? Hashemba makom hazeh, and not velo yadati, and I didn't know, but Va chilo yadati, but I didn't realize. I was the one who was ignorant. Okay, now, Pasuk Yud Aleph. Sorry, Pasuk, uh, yeah, Yud Aleph. Take your plagues off of me, right? I'm going to die from the blows of your hand. Um, and now I'm just going to skip in the interest of time and because I don't have great Hiddushim, I'm going to skip one verse. Um, he says, shim'at filati Adonai, hear my prayer, God, shavatiha azina, give ear to my, cry, to my um, cry. And then this sort of odd image, el-dimati al-techerash, don't be deaf to my tears, which is interesting because Tears are um, actually silent. Um, although, unless tears is just a way of invoking the noise that comes with crying, the sound of of, of crying. Um, um, and then Kiger Anochi Imach um Toshav Kichol Avotai. I am a stranger, an alien with um, um with you. Toshav kechol avotai, um, a, you know, a temporary resident, um, like my ancestors. Um, now, on the one level, this is obviously an expression of vulnerability. I am not at home. I am dependent on you. Um, and it's a kind of, in a very different register, the same sentiment, sentiment expressed in Vayikra, Chafhei, right? That you are always residents because any notion of human ownership and human um, kind of possession of anything is relativized the idea that only God is the owner. But Clifford, who I mentioned before, reads this verse very differently, and I'd be curious to hear in the comments whether you're persuaded by this. He says that what, what the psalmist is alluding to here is, God, you have insisted that you are ohav ger. You love the stranger you have insisted that at the very heart of the Israelite ethos is to protect the stranger and meet his needs. I'm your gear. You gotta help me. It's actually what you, that's the heart of your religion. You gotta do it. In other words, it's not just I'm vulnerable to you. It's that I'm making a claim here. God, you are the Baal Habayit. You are the master of the house. And I am the gear. So care for me. I am transient, but my well being is your responsibility um and then verse fourteen, right um, now, verse fourteen is what I was alluding to at the very beginning when I said that the ending of this psalm is incredibly ambiguous um so first, let me mention why it's first of all, it is very strange, at least on the surface as a transition from verse thirteen, right um leave me alone is not what you next expect after saying i am a gear and you have to take care of me or i am your gear and those you pray to god and then you conclude the prayer by saying and so in conclusion i wish you'd go away um it's highly unusual in fact i'm not aware of any other time in tanakh where the request is for god's inattention. Right, so many laments, and including this one until this point, are requests, dafka, specifically for God's attentiveness. And here, all of a sudden, at the conclusion of this psalm, you have a turn to God's inattention. That is a request not for God to have mercy and to turn toward the psalmist, but rather a request for God to have mercy and to turn away from the psalmist. You can look at Eo verse uh, peric Zion for one possible parallel to that. Now, it's also hard to know what the Avliga means. JPS says that I may recover, and then again, does the makes the comment about the Hebrew being uncertain. Um, Ray Shenlin, who's a scholar of medieval poetry but who translated the Book of EoV, translates the Avliga as "so that I may catch my breath." Um, the NIV that I may rejoice again. The NRSV that I may smile again we're a little bit all over the map here but the idea here of leave me alone is quite fascinating hashamimeni go away um eneni before i die and am no longer um this is a good example of the kind of text people point to when they say the hebrew bible has no notion of an afterlife the eneni sure sounds permanent um um, whether or not that's correct reading or not, in every instance, I I, I leave aside. Um, I, I want to make one final observation that I hope doesn't offend anyone. This comes from a place of deep aspiration to piety on my part, not anything else. One of the things I think is interesting about this psalm, as in many psalms of lament, is that at its heart there is a kind of beautiful but tormenting paradox, which is that the source of the psalmist's torment is also his only hope for salvation. The only thing that can save me or the only one who can save me is also the one who torments me. Now there may be something beautiful about that, but I also feel that in the 21st century, we should acknowledge that that experience is one that abused spouses describe not so infrequently needing to be saved by the very person who beats them first. And this is my one for all my obsession and love my obsession with and love for the Psalms of lament my one real misgiving about what they're doing psychologically. Because on the one hand there's comfort oh well if you're the source of my suffering, then you can you have it within you you're capable of redeeming me. But i'm nervous about the psychological dimension here of being kind of imprisoned to the goodwill of the one who has brought the suffering upon you in the first place. Now, what someone, you know, a faith might say is yes, but fine. But the point is that God is not an abuser And, and fair enough. I don't want to take that response away from people. I just want to notice the psychological complexity here. I'm not sure I buy that answer in every instance. Like I'm not sure that the author of Psalm 44 would sign on to the statement, God is not abusing him. But in any case, I, I wanted to mention that as a complexity here, but you know, I, I guess what I, what I, what, what I would say for sure about the ending here is that it is at minimum unsettling. Go away is so unexpected that you wonder what he's really saying. You know, is it leave me alone, I'm done with you, which is, I think very unlikely or give me, you know, it's, you know, sort of like a couple that's going through a hard time. And one of them says, how about we take a few days apart and then talk. Cause it's not working now kind of wonder relationally if that's what this is. Um, but it's extremely rich and suggestive and elusive. Um, and in imitation of the Psalm, I don't want to offer closure because I think the Psalm is not invested in closure and we should avoid tying ribbons on texts that are not interested in that. Um, okay. I'm now going to look at the comments in the chat. Um, and Lex, if you've been looking and have some that you want to Push to the front, or I don't know if Lex may not be here, but um, Elise, if you're on and you want to do that, that would actually be helpful because I see here that there's a tremendous number of comments here. Or right, let me see, um, where is the hope? Sarah, Sarah asked, Sarah Brooks asked. So I think that verse eight is a pretty clear statement of hope. Um, I mean, he basically says that, unless you think he's being sarcastic or ironic you know my only hope is you and you're hopeless but I don't think that's what he means um is the only bad speech about God why not Lashon Harai in general Bob asks um so I think the answer to that in Tehillim at least is that Tehillim does not seem to have reservations about speaking the raw truth about one's enemies again um to to remind you we've talked in previous sessions about how it's not always clear who these enemies are but i'm not sure there's any evidence in Tehillim of being concerned of oh i don't want to speak badly about people who are harming me i'm just not sure that's part of the piety or ethical view of these texts so i think it's pretty clearly bad speech about god um <clears throat> excuse me who is the wicked man is it our yates or harrah so i would say you can offer a kind of spiritualized reading which i say without no pejorative intent, whereby it's our Hara. I'm pretty confident that in the Psalms, it is not our Yitzhara. Um, it is, as I was just saying, some kind of um, enemy, enemy of the person, enemy of God, again, um, in, in biblical scholarship, this goes on and on as an ongoing debate about who is being spoken about, um, I just lost, someone made a comment about Martin Marty Cohen's translation, which I lost. Martin Cohen translation refusing to say even good things aloud yeah okay that's possible too um thoughts out of control like a raging fire yeah okay so I'm not gonna read all that Akiva says I would disagree I think all of verse four constitutes that turn um that is my heart began to boil and I could longer hold back my speech I agree about Jeremiah 29 which oh I mentioned that later myself too um I think you can say that if I I think that that's not a crazy Reading, um I yeah. I mean, you could say that. I was reading it as if that wasn't clear. As it was burning within me because I couldn't speak, and then I spoke. And you're saying I was burning within me, and it became almost inevitable that I speak. I guess I think that's what you're saying, Agiva. And that that may be right. And actually, in a funny way, that may not even be all that different. Um, to think about that um it's either totally different or or actually kind of another way of saying something similar I'm really not sure another one from Akiva is that I know but I'm I'm keeping missing ones I'm sorry um is it unusual for a chapter to end on negative note is it unusual yes is it impossible no it's certainly unusual to end on a note like this um from Barbara and Howard verse 34 verse 34 um what is that?
1: Correct it to verse fourteen.
0: Verse fourteen. Oh, sorry. Thank you. Is that based on a notion? I'm really having trouble with this. um Is that based on a theology that the idea that bad things happen to us is when God's eyes God's face? Well, if it is, oh, then the idea. Yes, I think it's. It. If anything, I think it's a subversion of the theology that says when you turn away from me, you are punishing me, and instead, it's if only you would turn away from me that would be a blessing for me it, if anything i maybe this is what you meant i'm not sure it's just a different theology i think it's a subversion of a classic image thank you for forcing me to draw that out um i keep losing this okay i'm sorry um norm writes okay i'm i'm, I'm going out of order here sorry i just because it's um being imprisoned by the goodwill of the one who brought you the suffering upon you is one of the reasons people claim to be Atheists Sarah writes um yeah um I think that there are many reasons why believing that the world is micromanaged by an all-powerful God can lead to some very unhealthy places I think there are also ways that it can lead to some very healthy places, even if I can only longingly admire those who can believe that. Um, And I don't think that's the only Jewish theological possibility, nor has it ever been. Um, But sure, you know, if you believe that God is brutalizing you, um, and then you're supposed to throw yourself on the ground and ask God to end your brutalization, I can imagine rebelling against precisely that. Sarah writes that unlike an abusive spouse, there is no one else to go to other than God. It's not like one can just pick up with another God. So, here, that's a very interesting comment. So, I want to observe the following thing. First of all, by the way, historically, that's not true. Plenty of Israelites did take up with other gods. That's one of the central themes of Tanakh. But um, I'm not encouraging that, just to be clear. Um, But I think that it's worth saying this is one of the ways in which And this really connects to what sarah just said as well this is one of the ways in which the modern world and the world of the tanakh are so different you know some of you have heard me say this a lot of times it's not that the questions are new it's that the range of possible responses has been dramatically expanded the notion of god i feel let down by you was hardly foreign to the book of psalms what is new in the modern period is the statement okay maybe there's no one out there i don't think the psalm's ever considered that a live possibility and therefore on some level you did have no choice but to go back to the one who had disappointed you because after all that one was the one in charge of the whole world you know the the 20th century israeli jewish thinker a uh, 2020 he's still alive Admi the Esrim, eliezer Shvaid, in one of his nine thousand books he um Eli least is one of the people who writes books faster than I can read them um, um it's just incredible but in one of his books on 20th century Jewish thought if I remember correctly the first chapter sort of insanely is about Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, right now you don't need to be a historian of chassidu to know that Rabbi Nachman did not live in the 20th century but I think that one of the things that may be driving Eli Shvaid to do that is that you could argue that Rabbi Nachman is the first person um in jewish piety for whom the possibility that there's no one out there is a viable option i once heard art green argue that rabbi nachman is the first modern jewish thinker because if you had asked the baal shem tov what keeps you up at night the Shem Tov would have said i worry about guilt and i want to replace it with joy and if you asked rabbi nachman what keeps you up at night he would have said i worry about guilt and i want to replace it with joy but also what if there's nothing out there at all and that that's the first moment of spiritual modernity and so you know yes sarah your comment is i think a very astute description of the dilemma you could argue that the psalmist faces but it also opens the door for why sarah can make a comment like the one she's made um it's i have about one minute to four so let me just take a couple of others um nor- Norman's comment, I think, is really interesting. Sounds as like though the author has lost hope that God will ever treat him kindly. If God pays attention to him, he wants to be below the radar. I think that um, what I would say about that is that is one of the things that he feels. Meaning, I am inclined to see this text, as I suggested at the very outset, as you know, deeply unresolved. And I think it is true that there's at least a moment a kind of impulse in this text one impulse that says well if you're going to treat me horribly how about you just leave me alone but I'm not sure that I would say that throughout this text he has given up hope of God being good to him like I still think that um verse 8 verse 10 verse 13 might suggest that there's something else going on in him also um well wow, there's so many more questions I'm not going to get to Elise, is there a way to download these for us and then if people want to you can email me more questions that we didn't get to excuse me um Uh, yeah definitely okay thank you um i'll just take one last one almost at random here maybe it's not that the psalmist experiences god is punishing him it's more that experiencing god is not comforting him um i think that when he says in verse nine, the idea is that to the extent that it's his enemies afflicting him, if that's what's going on here, which he never says, he says, his afflicted enemies are perhaps mocking him in his affliction, which is different. But to the extent that it's his enemies afflicting him, it is at minimum with God's permission. Think about, you know, the famous description to Avram in Genesis 15 about, you know you you're That's not necessarily a punishment but right and probably not a, right your children will be will be um gerim in mitzrayim and i'll also punish paro but the point is Paro doesn't do anything that god doesn't allow him to do that brings us back again to the problem of believing in an actively omnipotent god right is that at the end of the day your complaint about everything belongs upstairs um um, okay. I think I'm going to stop here just because it's, it's, I have 402 now. Um, thank you all again on, um, and I, uh, to, to end as I to end, as I always end, which is also how I begin wishing all of you health and safety to you and to everyone you love and really to everyone. Um, and to say that on Monday, we're going to look at Psalm 4243, which is one text which, if this is your first time with us, the reason we're doing that on Erev as Pesach approaches is that is a psalm that appears to be the prayer of someone who wants desperately to go on to visit the Beit HaMikdash, but can't, is trapped and isolated. And it seems like an appropriate last psalm for us to do before the beginning of Pesach. And with that, I and my voice are going to slink off. Um, Thank you all so much.
1: Thank Thank you.